friends, welcome to God on Tap. As always, I am Nika Spaulding, and we are continuing in the middle portion of chapter 2 today, 1 John chapter 2. So we're going to do 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And so this is the word of the Lord. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I know I said yesterday that we were going to look at the doctrinal litmus test, but honestly, as I read through these passages, I just didn't want to rush through it. I just, I think it's so important that we take a break and I'd have to move so quickly through this. And I think the truths in this section are so profound. And so we'll pick up, we'll pick up doctrinal litmus test tomorrow, uh, (laughs) Lord willingly. Um, because what so far in the book of First John, we've seen John saying, hey, I'm an eyewitness testimony. I, I saw, I heard, I touched Jesus. We are offering you fellowship with us, which then leads to fellowship with the Father. And then he launches into his big campaign, his big teaching in terms of this is how you can spot false teachers. And this is how you can know that you are securing your salvation. Because remember, John is trying to assure these people, you, you have been given eternal life. Don't doubt. And so he starts off by saying this incredibly radical, true thing. God is light. And then he says, anyone who would say these things about it, that it's not true, you guys are liars. And then here's the positive example, uh, that you would love people well, or excuse me, you would, well, yes, that, but first you would follow God, you'd be obedient to him, because that brings about flourishing. And then secondly, that you would love others well, not just people you like. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, did he just stick a poem in the, in the middle of chapter two. And first of all, there are no chapters back when the guys wrote in the Bible, but you get what I'm saying. Like in the middle of like this moral and social litmus test before he gets to the doctrinal, did he just like seriously just start freestyling a poem? The answer is yes. So if you're, if you had a a written Bible in front of you, you would see that, uh, that, that this section is actually well, in my ESV, I should say, I don't know if it's in every, but I think it's in most Bibles that it's sectioned out and set up like a poem because it is. And you can tell, even if you're not seeing it, hopefully you can tell the cadence is very different. He's like teaching, teaching, teaching. And then he's like, I'm writing to you, little children, do this. I'm writing to you fathers because of this. I'm writing to you young men because of this. I write to you because, to you because, to you, right? And so this pattern of parallel structures is very common in ancient Hebrew, especially Hebrew or yeah, or ancient poetry, excuse me. So parallel structures is very common in ancient Hebrew poetry. And I wonder if John is borrowing from that here because you see these parallel thoughts and parallel structure and all that good stuff. And so what is he saying? All of a sudden he just in the middle of it, he's like, boom, let's just hit a rap session. And then he comes back and then he's like, okay, I'm done talking to you, three classes of people. And don't love the world. So what's going on here? One, 
Uh, for women who are reading it, you're like, oh, okay, I guess I'm not included in this. Uh, I think we are meant to read a lot of scripture more uh, with an understanding that both genders are in mind here. And so what I think he's doing, and this is one of those examples, is I think when he's talking about little children, fathers, and young men, I think this is really a, these are metaphor fill-ins for the, for the life of the believer. So I think little children is men and women who are new in the faith. I think fathers is also mothers as well as assumed in that. I don't think John's a sexist. I think we're supposed to assume he's talking to both men and women. And I believe that these are the more mature people in the faith. And then I think he's talking to young men and young women, who, and these would be those who are growing in the faith. And I, I have some scholars who agree with me on it, but this is what I think he's doing. And I think in the middle of in the middle of reminding them of what they've been taught, I think he's very pastorally taking a moment and putting this poem forward and saying, hey guys, I want to remind you of some truths, some some things that are already true of you. And sadly, in the, in the English, something that doesn't get translated super well from Greek to English is this idea of a perfect verb. And so in, in the ancient Greek, the way in, in English, so I'll give you an example. In English, we have past, present, future, and then we, and then we also have, you know, sort of past progressive, future prog- progressive, things like that. And so what I mean by that is you can say, like, I, I ran yesterday. Or you can say, like, I went running yesterday. And the, it, all that to say, we have all these different classes of time and verbs in English. The same is true in Greek. And they have classes that we don't necessarily have in just built into one verb. And the perfect is one of those examples. So what do I mean by that? The perfect is a an event that took place already but has ongoing results. And this is a very, for those of you who are Greek scholars, you're like, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, it is. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But for the most part, this is true, that a perfect tense verb means that something happened, something definitive happened, but it is also happening, that it is ongoing. And and we in the English language don't have just a way to do that in one verb. Like we don't, we can't take the word run and say, ran ing on continuing like we don't have so we have to explain that and sometimes these things get missed in the english it's not to say i don't think english is fantastic i am not saying you have to learn the greek to understand your bible i am saying this is why resources are helpful to point out to us when these things are being used by the authors because they're very strategically being used by the author that's exactly what we find here in this passage it's really beautiful john the pastor is saying to young children to those who have just been converted he says, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. That word forgiven right there is in the perfect. It means you have been forgiven and there's ongoing forgiveness for you, which is a very profound thing because I think sometimes we wrestle, like I know as a pastor and frankly, just as a human, that I hear this idea and I hear it in my own head and the others people's like, I get that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but like, did he know how bad I was going to be post-conversion? And I know that the very trite thing that we say, and it's true, is that every sin Jesus died for for you, he did in the past. Like he, every one of your sins were committed after the cross. So you can really imagine like others being like, well, I know you died for my sins like three weeks ago, but did he know I was going to do this today? Like I can understand the early church really wrestling with this. But as more time's gone on, we, we kind of have this though. We're like, look, I get all that junk I did before I was a believer. That's easy for me to understand because I was blind. I didn't see, I didn't understand. But what about now that I 
have sight, I do see, I'm trying to walk in the light, and I frankly just blow it. And there's something really beautiful in this passage in the perfect verb that says you are forgiven. And there's the ongoing result of continued forgiveness in your life. Looking at the next one, I'm writing you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. This idea of knowledge, you knew, you know, and you continue. Like there's an ongoing knowledge, not a one time, at one point I believe, but there's an ongoing knowledge of God. And then young men, you have overcome. You overcame and you are overcoming. It's profoundly beautiful. And he continues on. You know the father, young children. You know him and you continue to know him. Fathers, you know him who's from the beginning. Young men, you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome. I I think it's incredibly beautiful what's happening here. That we... There are truths that belong to us that that if we are going, okay, I, I know God and I'm continuing to know God. I have overcome and I will continue to overcome. That I am forgiven and I will continue to be forgiven. That is our inheritance as the people of God. And I think John the pastor is trying to encourage, not just men, because I get that men are in there. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a woman. I'm just saying like, look, people, young believers, old believers, growing believers, wherever you find yourself, you have an inheritance from God and it is a beautiful one and it is it is strong and it is meant to be an ongoing inheritance. Uh, just a point of note in that verse 13 when it talks about overcome, uh, it's from the Greek word nikao, N-I-K-A-O. Uh, all Greek words in the lexical form have O at the end, so really it's the Greek word nika. It's where goddess of victory comes from. It's it's to have victory. It's not just you've overcome the evil one. You have you have defeated. You have victory. You have um, it, it. I'm pointing this out mostly just because I want y'all to know how cool my name is. That my name. I tell people all the time my name is in the Bible. Y'all just don't know because you don't read the Greek. But no, really, that's. Uh, I do think it's sweet that my name means that. And so um, if that's why you're wondering why the shoe brand Nike named their shoes that. It's because it's an homage to the goddess of victory. It's it's to win. It's to overcome. It's it's a perfect name for sport brand and apparently a human. All right, uh, let's press on. So that's what's happening. And then all of a sudden he's like, hey, you have all these things. You have all these things. And then he's like, um, so don't love the world. Right? And so it's if it could feel abrupt. But this is a – John's in the long pattern of – New Testament writers understand this phenomenon called the indicative before the imperative. That's what I mean by that. If you guys don't remember eighth grade, indicative sentences, because I I wouldn't, if I didn't keep up with my Bible studies, there'd be no reason to know these things. But indicative is a statement of fact. It is true. This is true of you. And an imperative is a command. So throughout the scriptures, we have indicative sentences. God is light. We have imperative. Walk in the light. That's a, that's a, That's a perfect, like, that's what that means. So, like, indicatives are just statements of fact. This is true. This is true about you. Um, Or it's an attempt at a statement of fact, right? It's just saying this is a true thing. This is, um, I'm making a claim about something. And the imperative is a command. You need to do this. Well, in the church, if we would follow the pattern that Scripture sets up, it would probably go better for us. And what I mean by that is... the writings of the New Testament assume an indicative before they give the imperative. They assume, so what I mean by that is like, it's assumed you are of Christ 
that's the indicative, therefore, walk with Christ. We see this same pattern earlier in the chapter. God is light, indicative. Therefore, walk in the light, imperative. And what happens is sometimes we divorce the imperatives from the indicatives. And then what that means is when we do that, then we forget the reason why we're doing anything is because of who God is and who we are in God. That's the indicative. In light of this greatest salvation that you have been offered, that you have been given the opportunity to be in the light, therefore walk in the light. But if we divorce those two and we forget that every imperative is predicated upon the goodness of God and the merciful gift of salvation given to us, then God just becomes a rule maker, right? He's not promise maker, promise keeper. He's rule maker and then disciplinarian, which is a totally different way of looking at the Lord. But if we see what John is doing here, he's like, you little children, fathers, young men, in other words, people of the faith, you are these things. You are forgiven. You're overcomers. You know God. You, this is indicatively true of you. Therefore, don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. And so I think it's I think it's incredibly important that we do not divorce indicative from the imperative. And so the imperative then is do not love the world. Because um, if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. And so this is um, this is one of those moments where understanding vocabulary is super important because we've already heard John say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so you're like, okay, so Jesus died for the sins of the world. And then later he's like, do not love the world. Um, this this idea of world is a word that's used throughout the scriptures, and it's it can mean different things. In this particular context, it's this idea of um, the 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 pride and the like all the negative things of the world, right? The thing that the world like if you're not sure what the world values, just go to any Albertsons counter, Kroger, Tom Thumb. Piggly Wiggly, wherever you buy magazines, go to the magazine rack, and that's the world's desires, right? Beauty and wealth and pride and whatever. And all those things aren't inherently bad, but when they're put in the hands of the world, then the desire and the pursuit of them bring about badness, right? So that's what he means. Because if you're not careful, then you think that, like, the stuff of this world is bad. And that has led to a misunderstanding of what consummation in the kingdom of God is going to look like that God like we have a new heavens and a new earth we are headed to like the world is going to be renewed like this like you're like oh well the Taj Mahal is hideous and don't worry it's all going to burn up in the end like no 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 like the God's going to purify the world we're going to we're going to walk we're going to get a new heavens and a new earth but it doesn't mean that it's going to lead to total destruction of the world instead what it means is like the desires of the world the things that make the world inherent the one the things that belong in the kingdom of darkness those things of the world are passing away so lust and power and greed and starving ourselves to fit into a size that you don't need to fit into like those things are going to pass away but the world and the people of the world are good the world is good god made the world is good now it's broken and it needs fixing but it's it's inherently good and so that's, when you read this, that's what he's saying, in light of who you are in Christ, don't love then the things that the false teachers love, which is this lust and this pride and this grossness, like that is all passing away. And thank God for that, right? There's a day coming when we won't have to interact with pride or lust or greed. Both we won't have to feel those things and we will not have to feel the effects of others feeling those things and it coming upon us. Like we won't have to worry about somebody's harming us because of their pursuit 
of those things, which is such a gift of where we're headed. And so those who do the will of God abide forever. Those We will not pass away. Unlike the world and like the nastiness of the world that's passing away, we are eternal, which is awesome. So what's our big so what? Uh, the indicative imperative paradigm is so unbelievably important, friends. I say this as friends. I know some of y'all are parenting. I know some of y'all are religious leaders. I know some of y'all need to talk to yourself. I know some of you are aunts, uncles, dads, principals, teachers, pastors, whatever. you, inact- you If you are interacting with humans that in some way are being shaped by you, May I suggest that you follow the pattern that we see throughout the scriptures of reminding people who they are and who God is. And everything else is predicated upon that. If you build a house made of imperatives and nobody in the house knows that it was built upon the foundation of the goodness of God and his unbelievable mercy and grace for us, that house will collapse. It will fall under the expectations of why am I doing this in the first place? Because when you fail under the imperative and you don't know about the goodness and the indicative behind it, then you don't have anything to catch you from the spiral of shame and guilt and pain and despair. And then you grow weary of a God you don't know who would make you follow rules you can't seem to live up to. But if you knew that there was a good God who loved you and came to this world to save you and he calls you things like beloved and child, and his, then when you fail, you know you land in the arms of a God who holds on to you. Because the perfect verb tells us these are ours and they continue on. They're ours and they continue on. If nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, God does. Peace.